If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 40 this morning. Exodus 40. This is our last sermon in the study of the book of Exodus. And so if you've been with us the entire time, then I'm sure you remember well September 25th of 2021. That's when we started Exodus chapter 1. Uh, We've taken a few pauses along the way. And as we've done that, we've walked through this book and we've seen that God is actively revealing His glory to His people. It's a book that begins and ends with His glory. And then along the way, between glory and glory, God makes Himself known. He reveals His character to His people. And so this morning, as our study closes with God's glory, we see Him descend into the midst of His people. Chapter 40 of Exodus. I'll read verse 1 of the chapter. We covered that part last week, but I'll read it again, and then we'll jump to verse 34. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And then the rest, so much of chapter 40 then is taken up with the actual building and constructing of the things which have already been built, putting them together. And then we pick up at verse 34. Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Uh, God in heaven, we acknowledge that we've come to your word. These are not man's words, but they're yours. And so we pray that you would grant to us the ministry of your Holy Spirit so that as an ordinary sinful crooked stick like me speaks, that you would use the ministry of your spirit to send forth your word and that you would cause your word to land in the hearts of your people. Give us ears that we might hear. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Susan and I were talking earlier this week about the lessons that we've learned personally through the book of Exodus. So many things that I've learned and stand out to me personally. Remember, we learned about a God who hears His people crying out in the midst of a desperate situation, crying for need. The Lord comes. He answers His people. Then a God who systematically exposes and even shames the gods of this world to make sure that we understand that every idol is weak and worthless, a God who is willing to bring his people to the point of desperation, to hem them in with an enemy pursuing from behind and then in front an impassable obstacle, and he does that in your life too. He's a God who then parts the Red Sea and makes absolutely sure you know there was no other way to move ahead if he did not open the way. It's his delight to make sure you know that he's the one who saved you. He's also a God who calls his people out of slavery in Egypt only to invite them to 
to wait upon him in a desert. And the world is so much like a desert. A God who ordains circumstances so that you feel your need for him. A God who feeds and shelters and clothes and gives us life even while you and I complain along the way. It's not good enough, Lord. I don't think you care for me. What are you doing? God who causes his people to hear his terrifying law, his unbending command of moral perfection. And then while we fail, and we so often do, He's the God who's willing to show mercy and grace to all those who call upon him from a broken and contrite heart. Here's what I've learned. God is teaching us to see his glory, which is sometimes a visible manifestation, but not always. Back in chapter 33, Moses asked the Lord to see his glory. He'd already seen fire in a burning bush, ten plagues, a Red Sea parting, manna from heaven, a pillar of fire and smoke. What more could he be asking for? God, at the essence of your being, who are you? That's what he's asking. Please let me see that. How does God answer? Exodus 33, 19, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In short, I'll show you my goodness, and I'll show you my godness. So if you and I, as finite beings, would understand the weight of the glory that has just been shown to us in this text, we'll have to understand that God is good, and He does good, but He's also God, and therefore He does God things in wisdom and providence that you and I don't often understand. So most of us think of God's glory, we think of creation, we think of sunshine, we think of tall mountains, we think of wide oceans, beautiful waterfalls. As we come to the book and the end, you begin to see, don't you, that God's glory applies to your everyday life. My grasp of God's glory is proven by my willingness to surrender to His reign and to trust Him to do what is best. We just read about a physical manifestation of God and the glory which accompanied that display, but it's pointing us to a spiritual reality that is in Christ God draws near through his spirit he dwells in us but you can't have a manifestation of God's presence without a revelation of his glory shouldn't we learn to expect a revelation of God's glory in our own lives that's what this text is about when God draws near he reveals his glory three points to break down our text. A year understood, a sudden problem, a shadow of hope. I'll draw your attention first to a year understood. Back in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, which is exactly one year from the tenth plague in Egypt. Exactly one year from God instituting the Passover. It's exactly one year from the night of the nation of Israel's salvation. Roughly one year from the Red Sea deliverance. God says, build it. 
and I'm coming to dwell in your midst. So everything we read from Exodus chapter 12 through Exodus chapter 40 took place in one single calendar year. It's now spring. You and I are wrapping up our study in the book of Exodus. It's about the same time of year that Moses was commanded by God to erect the tabernacle. It's the month Abib. It takes place sometime between mid-March and mid-April. And it's no accident. God causes them to finish their work one year from the day that he saved them. What better way to make sense of the year just passed? The tabernacle. It's a culmination, isn't it, of everything that God's been working toward since he brought them out of Egypt. I will dwell with you. I will be your God. You will be my people. Because it's all about his presence and it's about his glory. So that everything that they've experienced from the past year must be understood through a new lens, like the lens of God's glory and the good of his people. And there's been a lot that's happened. Pharaoh gets angry. Every time Moses comes in and says, let my people go, he says, look, I've had it. No more straw. You make your own straw and your own bricks. Conditions will get worse. More beatings until morale improves. It's about God's glory and your good. It's as if God says, wait, just a few more plagues. I'll crush your enemies. Or pinned in at the Red Sea, they feared greatly. Hey, Moses, was it because there were not enough graves in the dirt of Egypt that you brought us out here into the wilderness to die? God's glory and your good. And so with their own eyes, they see the Red Sea parts in front, and they walk right through the middle of it. Immediately, they get on the other side, and they sing, and they celebrate, and they're so happy. And then they realize, wait, it's a desert. We don't have any water. And then they wander, and they find some water, but it's bitter. This too, God's glory and your good, as the Lord says, I'm going to turn the water sweet. And hey, wait a second, we don't have any food. Again, God's glory and your good, manna from heaven. You see, my point is that every memory from the past year can be understood by the fact that God was doing something that they in the moment could not in fact see. It's a backward look, which makes sense of the whole year. But it's also a forward look. Verse 36, it's a summary statement of what happens in the future throughout all their journeys, it says. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Verse 38, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That is God revealed his presence and his glory. And what's the repeated phrase? throughout all their journeys because the past is meant to be understood through the lens of God's glory and his good for his people. But the next 40 years are meant to be understood in exactly the same way. God's about the business of accomplishing his glory and your good so that every trial they faced, every temptation they suffered, every inconvenience, every moment of fear, was an invitation for them to trust the Lord. And if it was them for that for them, 
Perhaps your future should be understood in exactly the same way. It's really about God's glory and your good. God has drawn you near in Christ to reveal His glory so that you and I would learn that He is God and you are not. I'm going to have to learn that too. There's a huge difference in creating your own false gods hoping that they will serve you versus being saved to meet the one true God in all of His glory and learning to serve Him in faith. It's, it's radically different. What about you? Does this in some ways help you understand your past? Your past five years? Your past year? Your past month? Your past week? Everything that you've experienced by way of trials and temptations and fears and failure, was given to you as a gift from God in order to strengthen your faith. And what if you were to understand that on the front end? That it's really about God's glory and His good. What if God really is good? What if He really does good? What if He really is God? And he really does God things. In other words, he knows exactly what he's doing. And he's not under obligation to tell you or me. How will that shape my understanding, your understanding of my next fear, my next failure, my next temptation, my next trial? Idol worship says, my God is at my disposal. And Yahweh says, if I've saved you, then you are at my service. And so at the one-year mark, the lesson for them is the lesson for you and me. This isn't really about you. It's about the king. It's about his glory. In fact, your salvation, your whole life is about God's glory. When God draws near, He reveals His glory. We've got a year understood. Now let's look at a sudden problem. So You imagine that Moses then hangs that last hook on the curtain outside. He closes the gate of the door to the tabernacle. He steps back. You imagine the whole nation stands in anticipation. They're watching the tabernacle. Is this the moment that we've been waiting for? Will the God who's been dwelling on the top of Mount Sinai suddenly come down? The God who delivered us from the Red Sea, they don't have to wait for an answer very long. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, scholars notice that the language rushes between verse 33 and 34. It's almost abrupt. Moses finishes the work, and then like a sudden rush, as if Yahweh can hardly wait to come and dwell among his people, his glory fills the tabernacle. And yet, as quickly as he comes, there's a problem. Verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You can imagine the confusion, can't you? The day before, they'd been working, putting together all of these pieces they'd been in and around the vessels and the rooms and the courtyard. Wasn't this a tabernacle meant to be a place for God to meet with His people, to allow us to approach Him? Even if it's guarded by courts and curtains, 
Wasn't the tabernacle meant to give people access to God? But then when he comes, not even Moses can walk into his midst. What's happening? Doug Stewart points out that the tabernacle is now Yahweh's house and it's no one else's. You may imagine a home builder who's working to finish up the final project on Tuesday. And even as he puts the finishing touches on the house, the keys are handed over and there's a closing which takes place on Wednesday morning. By Thursday, that same builder who was in the house on Tuesday cannot come back and just walk in the front door. He's got a knock. That's because, of course, the house belongs to somebody else. You'll remember that even on Mount Sinai, Moses entered the divine presence of God only by invitation. In fact, Exodus chapter 24, Moses waited for six days to be called into God's presence. Alec Motier said it this way. I thought it was humorous. He makes me laugh in ways at my desk that I can never really accurately communicate. He says, the Lord is sovereignly in charge of his own front door. Isn't that funny? It's not really that funny. Here's the point. He goes on to say that he makes whatever arrangements he wants to make. He's the one who gets to choose how you enter into his presence. In fact, the lesson of the tabernacle is no one approaches the glorious God unless he's welcomed. Not even Moses. We don't know how it happened. You imagine Moses probably tried to open the curtain, probably tried to walk through the outer courtyard, and he literally could not step through. And suddenly, everyone who saw it, the reality swallows up the confusion. And that is that God has come and he now dwells in our midst, but he's infinitely more glorious than any human being could possibly imagine. That's why Leviticus chapter 1 begins where Exodus chapter 40 ends. 1 1 of Leviticus, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. And then the rest of the book of Leviticus is taken up by explaining the conditions of how sinful humans can approach this gloriously holy God. And it's this there is no invitation from God without a blood sacrifice. So the cloud of God's glory is like a barrier. It's like an obstacle to teach the necessity of atonement. You and I are actually meant to read verse 34 and 35 and feel the weight of this awkward pregnant pause. There's a sudden problem that you and I never saw coming, but God did. Even if he desires to dwell with his people, his glory so fills the space that no one can casually approach him. The very reason that most people shy away from reading and certainly preaching the book of Leviticus is because the approach to God requires such precision that it's almost overwhelming. We're not about to transition and start preaching from the book of Leviticus, but I should say this. Those who would read Leviticus should know that the entire book, every detail, takes place over 40 days from this point. 
So the nation of Israel sits at this spot at the base of Mount Sinai from Exodus chapter 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. Why? Because they cannot walk forward with God. There can be no movement toward the promised land until atonement is properly understood and properly made. And the same is true for you. God cannot accept you on your own. You cannot begin to walk with him unless you first understand and embrace the atoning sacrifice that's already been made. No one can be a true Christian without embracing the sacrifice of Christ. You'll see confusion in our southern culture in two ways. First, there's people who just think of themselves as Christians by default because I'm not Muslim, I'm not Hindu. The Bible says you still must personally trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior in order to walk with God, in order to move forward toward the promised land of eternity. But secondly, in the South, there are people who grew up hearing the phrase like, you got to get right with God. As if it's something that you can do within your own strength in order to become a better person. So how many people in our culture have been, have been evangelized to the prospect of moralistic improvement? All that's just akin to skipping over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jumping all the way over the concept of blood and sacrifice. Skipping over the concept of atonement. Ultimately, you've got to skip past the Gospels of a Christ who is atoned, sacrificed to pay for your sins, so that somebody could get to the end and go, look, just get right with God. If Moses couldn't get right with God, friends, you cannot get right with God except by embracing the atoning sacrifice for sins. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. If the Hebrew people will move forward with the Lord, if they will walk toward the promised land, then they must embrace the sacrifice. If you would walk ahead with the Lord... If you would move towards the real, true, promised land, you must know you've got to embrace the sacrifice of King Jesus. You can't get right with God because the barrier cloud of God's glory is standing in the way. And that cloud is a testimony. God had to do it all in order to make it possible for you to ever walk with Him. And He has done that. And he offers that to you in Christ. Likewise, Christian friends, every single time you stumble or fall as a Christian, every time you turn and you walk away from the Lord, whether for a moment or for a season, every time the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins and he reminds you that by your flesh, you're actually on the outside of the curtain looking in, you must come back with confidence. Not because you resolve in your strength, okay, I'm going to do better this time. But because Christ welcomes you at the door of the true tabernacle in heaven. 
And he walks inside on your behalf. And Jesus is your invitation, but he's also your perfect acceptance every single time. When God draws near, he reveals his glory. So we've got a year understood. We've got a sudden problem, finally a shadow of hope. These last three verses, you find a shadow of hope in three different places. First, let's stare at the cloud. If the tabernacle was meant to be a sign of God's unchanged purpose to dwell with his people, then verses 36 through 38 mark this unchanged purpose to to ultimately bring them to the promised land. Stare at the cloud, even while it covers the tent of meeting. It provides shade in the midst of a brutal desert climate. It is also a shadow of the hope for the future. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they didn't set out. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys. Verse 38, throughout all their journeys. That's, that is because the Lord never left his people. They walked through a desert. And along the way, they encountered enemies. They encountered deception. They encountered their own evil hearts. And the Lord is with them every step of the way. This cloud which serves as a shadow of hope for them, also serves as a shadow of hope for you and me as well. The cloud testifies the fact that God never changes his purpose. Not only does he promise to dwell with his people, he promises also to walk with his people throughout this desert journey and to bring his people home. And some of you even now know and feel the sense that this is a desert You feel the heat along this walk. So many times, the next step in life or walking with Christ seems hard, and the journey seems very long. Some of you have lost or are in the process of losing loved ones. Or your own health seems unstable. Or you long for work. Or you long for better work. Or you long for friendships. Or you long for healing of relationships. Maybe feel the burden of circumstances which pile on top of each other. Stare at the cloud. It is certainty that everything that you face in this life is for God's glory and for your good. But perhaps more comforting, Christ is actually with you throughout all of your journeys. So that his presence is the all-sufficient shade for your journey to the promised land. And he will get you there. After you stare at the cloud, let's look at the heart. Here's what I mean. God is doing something at the heart level of his people throughout this entire desert journey. So that none of this is wasted. He's teaching them to look at them and to watch. He's, he's teaching them to look and to watch. So his movement, whatever it is, whenever it takes place, serves as guidance and assurance. So that they must learn to live their lives so intensely watching him that his movements actually become comfort to them. 
When God moves, we move. When God stops, we stop. Do you see? He's teaching them not to stare at the desert, but to stare at the Lord. They are learning faith. They're learning to to wait upon Him. I find this personally comforting and personally convicting. It's comforting because none of this is wasted in this life. In this life, God is doing something. And what He is doing is always directed at the heart level. He is using circumstances and events to transform me, you. There's purpose in His movements. It's personally convicting because all of God's movements suddenly become an invitation to learn faith, to learn to wait upon the Lord, to learn to stare at Him instead of staring at the desert. So here's a reminder, when your house floods, your cars break, your health fails, you just begin to feel overwhelmed by circumstances, maybe God's just moving. But not in an Asbury College revival way, but more like in the ordinary ways that He always moves, so that you and I learn to watch Him with eyes of faith, and we learn to anticipate spiritual growth at a heart level. Suddenly, everything becomes more clear. I do not encounter trials as annoyances from a cruel father throwing and hurling things from heaven at me. I encounter trials as an opportunity to teach me to look and stare in the face of the king who says, I'll use it. I'm moving. You stare at the cloud. You look at the heart. You rest in Christ. This is the climax of the book of Exodus. But it is not the climax of redemption. The tabernacle, the cloud... The glory of God visibly seen. It's all a shadow of the glory which is prepared for us in Christ Jesus. So the Lord set up in their midst a visible illustration. That is, the God of glory never changes His course. He desires to come close. He desires to identify Himself, as one scholar said, with His people's circumstances. And take up residence at the heart of their nomadic life. That's what God did in Christ. He comes close. He so identifies himself with sinners that he took on flesh and blood. He so identifies with your circumstances that he who was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He so desires to dwell at the center of your nomadic journey through this desert. And life's a desert that Jesus would say, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He so desires to show His glory and share His glory that we are told that He will come again on the clouds with power and great glory. 
and it'll be crystal clear. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When God draws near, he reveals his glory. Look for it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would send it forth for the sake of your people. That you would not only be honored and glorified in its preaching, but in the spirit-given ability to grab hold of it and embrace it and apply your word to our hearts. Give your people help. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.